So the reading is 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 to 6 and 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 to 4. Let's prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. To Timothy. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. This is the word of the Lord. This is called This Is My and three celebrities introduce a member of the public, a random member of the public, but only one of them has connection to. And all three of them tell a story about how they know that person, and the other team have to guess who it is. And we like to pause the program, really sad, and have a little guess uh, who it might be. And it's particularly uh, difficult in two different ways. One is particularly difficult because often all three stories are just ridiculous, and you can't believe that any of them will be true. But then it's even harder when all three stories are plausible, when they've all got something where you think, oh, that's got an element of truth to it. And that's when it's really difficult. And of course, in a program like Would I Lie to You, it matters not a job whether we get it right or not. But in today's passage, John is trying to say to us, discerning whether somebody's telling the truth, particularly when it comes to spiritual things, is a matter of life and death. It's really vital. So Would I Lie to You is a bit of fun. Today's passage actually is deadly serious. Um, We're working our way through 1 John, and if you've been with us all the way through that, you'll know that in 1 John, there's lots of tests for us as Christians to know whether or not we're Christians or not. And uh, Nigel, Pastor Nigel's been helping us work through those. But in today's passage, although there is one of those tests towards the end, this is mainly a passage about a test that we need to apply 
to the teaching that we hear. So this is a, a test that, uh, this is why it's ironic, that you can apply to me as you uh, hear me preach this morning. Is what I'm saying from God or not? And I want us to look at three things. First of all, why this spiritual discernment is so important. Secondly, how do we tell if somebody's telling the truth or not? And thirdly, how do we overcome the really attractive false teaching that this passage talks about? So let's look at um, number one, which uh, I'm going to be mainly looking at verses one to three. The reason for discernment, it's essential because the spirit of the Antichrist that John talks about in, in verse three is at work in the world. Satan and his forces are working in the world trying to lure us away from Jesus. Now, I know you know this, but in the 21st century, the concept of truth is a dying uh, word, isn't it? Particularly in the Western culture. Uh, and John is trying to say to us, look, Christians, you must not allow truth to be compromised within the life of the church. Uh, last month, National Geographic ran an article called Why We Lie, The Science Behind Our Complicated Relationship with the Truth. Why we lie, the science behind our complicated relationship with the truth. And I think if John was here reading that article, he'd want to say to us, actually, it's not that complicated. It's not a scientific matter. It's a spiritual one. It's not a chemical matter. It's a heart one. And he'd point us to this passage, and especially verses 2 and 3, and say, look, there's two types of teaching. There's teaching which uh, flows from the spirit of God, or teaching which flows from the spirit of the Antichrist. And God and all that he says is true. And Satan and everything that he teaches is subtly and deceptively not true. And whether they know it or not, behind every false teacher, behind every false prophet, is this spirit of the Antichrist promoting errors that they're teaching. We're in a spiritual battle. Verse 6 tells us there's a spirit of truth and a spirit of falsehood. And because we're in this spiritual battle, we must learn to be discerning Christians. I think John wants to make this clear in verse 1. He says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God, because many full spirits have gone out into the world. It's a kind of present tense instruction for us. Do not believe every spirit. It literally means stop believing every spirit. Don't be gullible. Don't be over-accepting. So we have to have this ongoing spiritual discernment, weighing up what people tell us about God, because the spirit of the Antichrist is alive and well and promoting falsehood wherever he possibly can. Now I thought, as James alluded to, of giving this sermon a title or based on that verse one, something like, don't believe everything you hear. Um, but uh, that might be a bit self-defeating, so I hope you'll believe some of what I hear, but test it for yourself. Uh, and, but it is a question that we ought to ask for every sermon that we hear. And dare I say, even the ones that Pastor Nigel preaches week in, week out, we should be asking ourselves the question, how do I determine if what I'm hearing is true, whether it's to be believed and whether it's to be followed? Now at this point, I want to make clear that when the Bible talks about true, it doesn't just mean um, kind of completely true, it means, sorry, when it talks about not true, sorry, it doesn't just mean about completely true, it means somewhat true, false, somewhat false, completely true at times, um, almost true. So truth is truth, always true and fully true. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, 
we've somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we don't seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who doesn't emphasize the right things. So truth isn't just about telling the truth, it's about emphasizing the right things as well. Now, if like me, you've tried to have conversations uh, at work or at the school gate where you've tried to hold on to a biblically true perspective, it's tough, isn't it? In 21st century Britain, to have a focus on truth is pretty controversial. So when you're at the work or the school gate or in the playground and you're trying to hold on to this biblically-based truth about issues around sexuality or gossip or divorce, it doesn't go down well to be seen as inflexible or intolerant. You're kind of seen as outdated, 19th century Victorian uh, mentality. And we learned back in chapter 3, that's part of what it's, why it says we shouldn't be surprised if the world hates us if we try and hold on to truth. And it's always been the case, and that's why John wrote this letter, and he's speaking to us, I think, through the ages, to say the truth is as essential now as it was then. Last year, do you know what the word of the year was last year? Anybody remember? Post-truth. Very good, Peter. Was that you? Peter, was that you that said that? Yeah, yeah very good. Top marks. Post-truth. I won't ask you what the dictionary definition of it is. I'm gonna, I'll tell you what it is. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary says this, that post-truth is when objective facts are less important in shaping opinion than appeals to emotion and belief. So objective facts are subservient to our own views and opinions and belief. And I think this is never more the case than in the area of religion, where if we claim to be holders of the truth, to believe in one God, one way to be in relationship with him, we're seen not just actually as outdated or inflexible, but we're actually seen as dangerous. Um, I found, when I was preparing for this sermon, a really discouraging leaflet called 20 Reasons to Abandon Christianity. Uh, and at fifth place, it said this, Christianity breeds arrogance, a chosen people mentality amongst people who claim to be the only carriers of the true faith. So apparently, holding on to the truth, claiming to have objective fact, is not just uh, dangerous, it's also arrogant. And I think it's easy for you and I to fall into that trap of believing that too, particularly when we're talking to other people about our faith. I and mean, we can feel like we could be so much more winsome, so much warmer, uh, so much more loving if we weren't just such sticklers for the truth. Uh, but John is warning us here that when it comes to spiritual matters, the truth can't be compromised. We've got to shun a reliance on how we feel and actually seek out and listen to the truth, the truth of the Bible. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Kellyanne Conway. She's one of my favorite characters in the White House currently. I use the word favorite very loosely. Um, <laughs> she was my second favorite until Sean Spicer uh, re resigned, so now she's my favorite. And she became famous uh, recently because, I don't know if you remember after Donald Trump's inauguration, there was a press conference and Sean Spicer, the White House press secretary, uh, super inflated how many people were at the inauguration. And Kellyanne Conway was on a news program the following day, and she was asked by the uh, news program interviewer, a guy called Chuck, he's American, um, why Sean Spicer had done that. And she said, don't be so overly dramatic about it. Sean Spicer gave alternative facts. And that's where the phrase alternative facts came from. Alternative facts. And friends, as Christians, 
When it comes to the gospel, there's no such thing as alternative facts. Anything else is a lie. And Chuck, I think he knew some of that. He said to Kellyanne Conway, alternative facts are not facts, they're falsehoods. A few weeks ago, Nigel talked us through three tests that John gives us to know whether we're a Christian or not. And you, I don't know if you remember the third one. It was about the core. What is it that we're focused on? And I think in this passage, John is flashing this huge red light after those tests to say there are people outside and inside of the church who are seeking to focus away from the core of our faith. They're seeking to make us feel uncomfortable about the truth. And they're trying to present an alternative, very attractive alternative gospel. And there couldn't be anything more dangerous than that. And we shouldn't think that these are going to be blatantly obvious uh, mistruths or falsehoods or alternative facts. When John says in verse 1, many false prophets have gone out into the world, we need to get rid of the kind of Scooby-Doo evil character sort of person in our mind. These aren't sinister, evil-looking characters. They're not encouraging um, kind of child sacrifice or Satan worship. They weren't claiming to follow another religion. They were claiming to be Christians. They were claiming to have the truth. And the more I've thought about this, the more as I've prepared this week, I've actually uh, become more convinced that the greatest danger to the doctrine of the church doesn't lie in other religion, doesn't even uh, lie in the kind of rising secularism of 21st century Britain. It lies within the church and the danger of false teaching. Now, hopefully, if you're regular here, you might be saying to yourself, that's okay, because actually we're in a church where the Bible's well taught. There's no danger of this false teaching here. And that, of course, uh, we hope is true, but we'd be naive to think it could never happen. But also, if you're anything like me, you don't only get your Christian teaching here on a Sunday morning. You read Christian books, you listen to Christian music, you turn on the Christian radio and listen to somebody preaching there. And we'd be wrong to think, wouldn't we, that the truth is always being preached in those situations. Just because an author says they're a Christian doesn't mean that what they've written is the truth. So we have to develop this discernment. These false teachers, John tells us, they're in the world and they're using Christian jargon. They've got a Christian veneer. They look and sound like, if we're not being discerning, Christians. They're subtle, difficult to spot lies. They're not these massive whopper lies. Jesus calls these people wolves in sheep's clothing in Matthew. Paul says that these men disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and servants of righteousness. And some of these people may appear in our church. They may seem the nicest of people. They may be very charismatic. But if they don't believe in the authority of the Bible or the exclusivity of salvation through Jesus, then they're not telling the truth. And we have to be careful because these sort of false prophets can easily destroy our walk with Jesus. The false teaching, the work of the Antichrist, is to lure us away from Jesus. And of course, if those people come into our church, we welcome them because they need Jesus as much as we do. But we mustn't let them have influence on the church. We have to be wise and have confidence in the truth. And Christian, to be confident in the truth of the Bible isn't arrogant. It isn't arrogant because it's not our truth. As um, James reminded us earlier, it's an uh, objective truth outside of us that is of God. It's our faith to have trust and truth in the truth of the Bible. 
If you're not a Christian here today, I hope that today's passage, as we look at it a bit deeper now, will help you sit up and ask yourself, is there really such thing as the truth? Does Jesus, when he says of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, is that real? It's a, d- it's a claim that should be assessed, and we'd encourage you to go on a course, a course like churches like us run, which enable you to spend time trying to discern for yourself, was that claim of Jesus true or not? So, here in this passage, we have John find sounding this danger alarm that the truth and our ability to recognise the truth and our ability to walk with Jesus is in danger of being eroded by false teachers who are the spirit, verse 3, of the Antichrist. And as Bible-believing Christians, we've got to wake up to the danger day in, day out, and know how to spot false teaching, how to, as he tells us in verse 1, test the spirits. But how do we do that? How do we know if somebody's telling the truth or not? I love spy movies. I would be a rubbish spy, but I'd love spy movies. I really like interrogation scenes. When they get the uh, machine out, the lie detector machine, they wrap it around your arm and they interrogate the person and they inevitably uh, you know, either break or they've been trained how to tell the truth or how to pass the t- lie. And I had somebody on the radio recently who said they could teach anybody how to pass a lie detector test, which I thought was brilliant. And apparently it's all to do with clenching your buttocks at the right time. <laughs> <laughs> it sounded quite simple to me, but... Uh, I don't know. Uh, but there's another guy from the FBI, a guy called Mark Booten, who's written, he was an FBI agent for 30 years, and he's written a book called How to Spot Lies Like the FBI. And it, I don't know how he managed to write a whole book, because what he says, his top line is, there are a number of facial expressions and associated reactions that can indicate someone is lying to you. I don't think it takes an FBI agent to point that out. In this passage, if you look at verse 2, John is saying something much more obvious than that about how we spot if somebody's telling the truth or not. He basically says, listen to what they're saying. For John, the mark of a true teacher is to be found in what they have to say. Verse 2, this is how you recognise the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges, or some versions have confess, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that doesn't acknowledge Jesus is not from God. The litmus test of whether the truth is being told or not is Jesus. Does the person who's teaching you about the Bible point to Jesus? Do they make Jesus big? Do they exalt him? If they don't, as we learned back in chapter 2, they're lying. But how do we know if what they're teaching about Jesus is true or not? And this is what James was talking about earlier. It's from the Bible, the word of God. If what's being taught with, agrees with the Bible, then it's something we can listen to. If it doesn't, then we shouldn't. So the onus is on us to know our Bibles well enough to spend time in the Word of God with the help of the Holy Spirit to learn who Jesus is through the Bible, to, un- to learn doctrine through the Bible, and then we can begin to judge whether what's being taught is true or not. Because the Spirit of God that John's talking about here will never, ever speak against his own word. A false teacher may be gentle, they may be loving, they may be exciting, they may perform miracles, they may speak in tongues, but the question is, does their teaching agree with what you know from the Bible? If it doesn't, then what they're teaching isn't the gospel, it's alternative facts, and it should be rejected. But again, look back at verses 2 and 3 with me. Did you notice what they should be teaching about Jesus specifically? 
They should be teaching that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Now, if you've been around for these last few weeks, you'll know that there was some false teaching going on in John's days. Uh, some groups were teaching that all stuff, everything, is evil. And therefore, Jesus couldn't possibly be a real man because that would be evil. So Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, wasn't man, uh, but he was this, this kind of spirit being who only seemed to be a real man. But then there was this other group, and I think this is who John was talking to, who said, no, Jesus was a man, but he was merely a man. And Christ, this uh, divine figure, came upon Jesus at his baptism and departed before the crucifixion. John is saying to us very clearly through this passage, we must teach that Jesus Christ has come in flesh, that he's fully man and fully God. And if we deny that, then we're denying actually the basis of our Christian faith. Because if Jesus wasn't God, he would have been a sinner, and therefore the cross and his death on the cross would have been ineffectual. But if Jesus wasn't a man, then he couldn't have taken our sin upon him and stood in our place. And again, the cross would have been ineffectual. And the very heart of the Christian faith is the cross. And so if Jesus wasn't fully man and fully God, then we would lose the power of the cross. We'd lose the place of forgiveness. We'd lose that massive, greatest demonstration of God's love for us. So any teaching that denies that Jesus is fully God and fully man denies the very heart of the gospel. It's the, it comes from the spirit of the Antichrist. It literally means Antichrist, of course, the one who is against Christ. John Calvin wrote about this passage, Christ is the object at which our faith aims, and so he's also the stone at which all heretics stumble. So John Calvin and John, our writer here, are telling us that the content of our theology is hugely important. What we listen to matters greatly. Christianity is about Jesus. We can disagree on lots of other things. We can disagree on adult baptism or child baptism, uh, how often we have communion, um, what sort of songs we sing and how loud they should be. We can disagree on all those sorts of things. What we can't disagree on is why Jesus came and who he is, because to do so is to reject the centre and the heart of our Christian faith. So Christian, are you spending enough time in the Bible to get to know Jesus properly? Are you spending enough time meditating on him, pointing other people to him, singing about him, listening about him? And again, if you're not a Christian, please don't reject Christianity until you've explored the person of Jesus, because if you haven't explored Jesus, then you haven't yet explored the Christian faith. It doesn't matter how eloquent somebody is, how smooth they are, how spiritually charged they are, if their teaching doesn't lift up and exalt Lord Jesus, fully man and fully God, then it's not true. But you might be saying to yourself, okay, but anybody can say the right words. Yeah, it's not enough to uh, just pay lip service to the truth. And again, I think John is uh, saying he'd be right to say that. If you look at verse uh, 2 and 3, there's uh, in some versions the word acknowledge, and in other versions the word confess. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. It's not enough to say the right things about Jesus. That's, that's lip service. We have to have genuine confession of who Jesus is. Back in uh, chapter 1 of this book, John uses the same word when he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins. Confession is a heart matter. It's not just a, a lips matter. I don't know how many times I've said to one of my boys, 
say sorry, go and confess to your brother. And you get this kind of arms folded, turn back on me, turn the back on their brother, sorry, stomp off. You might have either, well, Dan's looking like he remembers doing that rather than it happening to him, yeah. Uh, confession has to come from the heart. It has to be sincere. Our actions always reflect our hearts. So when we're listening to somebody, we need to know that beha- belief and behavior always go together. It's only when we have a sincere, genuine confession of Christ and a life that submits to him as our Lord, that's the evidence of the Holy Spirit being at work in us, and then we can listen to that person speaking. We need to be taught by somebody who confesses both of their lips and their life that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, I'm not talking, though, about going on a spiritual witch hunt. You know, so I've tried to emphasize very much that the truth is important. doesn't mean we should be judgmental. We don't want to exalt doctrine over Jesus. We talked recently about the word epithumia, when we over-exalt something. Doctrine and the truth clearly is absolutely essential. Uh, but we need to welcome people into the life of our church and to love them and point them to the true Jesus. So hopefully so far so good, you're with me, that uh, we need to believe that Jesus came in the flesh, that we need to listen to uh, Bible-believing, Bible-preaching speakers, and that they should be confessing with their lips and their lives that Jesus is king. So when I was working my way through this passage, I thought to myself, that all makes sense. So why in verse 5 does it say, they are from the world, the false teachers, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them? How is it that these false teachers, when the gospel is the best possible news that we could ever hear, how is it that the world is listening to them? What is it about their teaching that is so attractive? And there's another American drama, another FBI drama that Ruth and I are watching. And in there, some FBI agents go undercover. And one particular FBI agent went undercover with the Ku Klux Klan. It's set in the 80s. And one of the agents says to him, how did you get the Ku Klux Klan to believe you? And the other agent, the undercover one, says, I simply kept telling them over and over again what they wanted to hear. That's the sort of teaching that these false teachers are espousing. In verse 5, they're teaching we want what we want to hear, what the world loves to hear. And if we hear it enough, with enough persuasion, then we're in danger of believing it unless we're testing the spirits. In 2 Timothy, uh, it talks about in verse 3, they'll gather around themselves a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. The reason false teachers are gaining our audience is because they preach and they speak what our itching ears want to hear. We love to hear teaching that tells us how great we are, how wonderful we are, how uh, our middle-class dream is okay to have, that the Bible doesn't have anything to say about that. But the problem is that the message isn't from God. It's from the world and from the God of this world. It's a lie which is sent to distract us from the core truth of the Bible. It's just like Satan's original lie to Eve back in the garden, trying to detract from God's glory and to exalt man's glory. It panders to our pride it's the work of the Antichrist. And as well-taught Christians, we're not going to be fooled, are we, by somebody who says, stands up here and says, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. But it's very easy for us to be lured in by teaching which does pander to our old pre-salvation nature, something which plays down sin, which massages my ego, which uh, offers some self-help therapy. Um, it doesn't challenge my comfortable life. We love that sort of teaching which... Uh, 
diminishes Jesus and makes us bigger. And I know for myself there were times when I wished the Bible didn't say what it said. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. And so it's really easy to be drawn in by these false teachers who reaffirm what I wish was true. They'll tell me that the passages about hell or generosity don't really mean what they mean. I can just ignore those bits. But they're not true. They're alternative facts and they're always wrong and they're always coming from the spirit of the Antichrist. Jesus uh, warns his disciples in Matthew. He says, Many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah and they will lead many astray. And we must test the spirits or we're going to be drawn in by this very attractive sort of false teaching. There's an old, now dead, sadly, American pastor called A.W. Uh, Toz Tozer, and he gave a list of seven uh, really helpful questions which we should ask ourselves every time we hear anything being taught from the Bible. Uh, so just very quickly, he actually says these are teaching that we can test whether they're from the spirit of God or from the spirit of the world. So very quickly, the seven. Does this teaching magnify and glorify God or diminish him? Does this teaching magnify the Lord Jesus and give him first place? Or does it subtly shift the attention onto me and my own personal experience? Does the teaching come from and agree with the word? Does it increase my love for the word? Does the teaching feed self or crucify it? Does it feed my pride or my humility? Does this teaching lead me to have a genuine love for other Christians? Does this teaching lead me to pursue worldly riches and reputation and pleasures? Or does it crucify the world to me? And does this teaching cause me to tolerate sin in my life or to turn from it and to grow in holiness? I think seven really helpful questions. The challenge is, of course, we find teaching which feeds self and which tolerates sin and allows the pursuit of riches and reputation. We find that really attractive especially if it's painted with a Christian veneer, then we really love it. So we know that we have to recognise false teaching. We know that we have to look for the telltale signs of uh, true teaching. Does it point to Jesus and the Jesus of the Bible? But how, and third and finally, and quickly you'll be pleased to know, uh, how do we know, how do we resist this false teaching which uh, panders, which speaks to our itching ears? How do we overcome that? So this point is a short one, but it's a vitally important one. How can John, in verse 4, say, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them? Well, they have overcome in the sense that, despite being exposed to this false teaching, they're still Christians, they're still lifting Jesus up, they've remained true to their faith, and they're following their saviour. So they have overcome. So what is it that these Christians in 1 John 4 had? What is it? What skills have they developed what personality traits did they have which meant that they could stand strong when these charismatic false teachers were speaking to them? I think the answer is nothing. These, these Christians didn't have anything in and of themselves that allowed them to stand strong against the lure of these false teachers. These little children of, who are of God, as it says in verse 4, from God, uh, they didn't, it doesn't say anywhere here that they were superior intelligence, that they'd been, uh, been on an intensive Bible training course, that they uh, had supreme theological knowledge. In fact, probably a lot of the false teachers were more intelligent than them and had greater knowledge of the Bible. So what is it that enabled them to overcome? Well, John says in verse 4, 
You've overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. It wasn't anything that these Christians had in and of themselves that delivered them. It was the fact that through the new birth, through the Holy Spirit at work in them, living in them, dwelling in them, that's who was consistently pointing them to Jesus, the ultimate truth. It's the Holy Spirit that was giving the readers of 1 John 4 and us the ability to discern, the ability to understand the Bible, the ability to know Jesus, the ability to avoid the errors of these false teachers. It's the Holy Spirit which helps us understand why Jesus came and who he came for and what he did for us. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us an understanding of the power of the gospel. It's God at work in us through the Holy Spirit who is greater than he who is in the world, the teachers of the false truths. None of us will resist the lure of false teachers and listen to the true message of Jesus unless the Holy Spirit gives us ears to hear. None of us are going to confess from our heart, as we uh, tells us in verses 2 and 3, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh unless the Holy Spirit humbles us to accept the authority of the Bible and the authority of Jesus in our life. Without the Holy Spirit, we will always exalt ourselves and not Jesus. Right at the end of this passage, verse 6, there's another one of John's tests for us. How do we know if we know God, if we're Christians? Verse 6, we are from God and whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognise the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. One of the clearest evidences, friends, that you're a Christian is your readiness of uh, accepting the word of God because the Holy Spirit is at work in you. It's the Holy Spirit, a gift from God, which opens our ears and our hearts to the word of the Bible. So Christians, that's why we don't need to be arrogant. We can't take credit for our listening ears, our confessing hearts, our correct view of Jesus. We should give credit to God who's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit and is keeping our core focused on Jesus Christ, come in flesh. It's that Holy Spirit which means that we can overcome the alternative facts, and there are a lot of them in the world, aren't there? It's Jesus, the ultimate truth, who's defeated the lies and the liar, defeated the Antichrist that this passage is talking about. We need to give God the glory. And when you're tempted, as we will be day in, day out, to uh, listen to the false teachings of the evil one, when we're tempted to uh, feed our own pride instead of feeding Jesus and lifting him up, anything that seeks to point us away from Jesus, we need to turn back to this passage and remind ourselves that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Jesus is the truth, and we need to trust him. Uh, another preacher, Ray Steadman, finishes his sermons on this passage by saying, God, help us to be unbelievers in error, as well as believers in truth. And I pray that that might be true for us too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you uh, that he was fully man, fully God, that his death on the cross was fully sufficient. Lord, thank you for the gospel which in and of itself is also fully sufficient. There needs to be nothing added to it and nothing taken away. 
Lord, thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who opens our ears and our hearts and our eyes to the truth of your word that um, keeps us away from the false lure of false doctrine, of alternative facts. Lord, we want to see Jesus lifted high. Lord, we want to reject anything that makes him smaller than he is. Lord, uh, for those of us that are Christians, Lord, would you please help us to uh, dwell in your word, to get to know Jesus through your word, to meditate upon him, to love him, and to point others to him. And Lord, for those of us uh, that aren't Christians, pray that uh, we would be confident to ask uh, other Christians to get to know the real Jesus. Lord, would you please uh, open each of our eyes and our hearts to the truth of your word. Lord, thank you uh, that if we were going to lift anybody high, if there's anybody who's worthy to be trusted, then it is the truth, Jesus, and we uh, want to love him more and more. Thank you for your word again, we pray.